in a college philosophy class. The professor, she spends all semester talking about how we make decisions and introducing her students to these different thinkers throughout history who have had different ideas about choice and freedom and ethics and what actually defines what philosophers call the good life. And the professor, she's a really good one, so she pushes her students to connect all of this with their own personal lives. And so now these 19 and 20 year olds are asking new questions about their own choices, questions they have never thought to ask before. And then comes the final exam. Dum, dum, dum. Everyone gathers in the class and the test is passed out and the students are surprised to find that there is only one question that they are supposed to spend the next 90 minutes answering, drawing from all of their discussions and all the thinkers that they've been exposed to this year. It's sort of the dreaded type of final. And the question at the top of the page is simply this. You're walking down a path and you come to a fork in the road. What do you do and why? That's it. One scenario, one essay, and it will determine this huge final grade for these students. And isn't that just like a philosophy professor? To give them one question that's neither right or, no, or wrong, there's no clear answer, but a question where so much hangs in the balance. It feels kind of like a trick. Only that's actually how most of our lives are lived, aren't they? We're always coming to forks in the road, and we have to decide which way to turn next and why, and there's never clear answer for that, not most of the time anyway. No one is there to tell us which way to go. We just have to choose. And so you start to wonder, where will these two different roads take me? Is one path harder? Is one easier? Will one make me more happy or less happy? Is God calling me down one or the other? We come to these types of questions over and over again in our lives, in small ways, sometimes in big ways, and in different seasons, we come to them in different kinds of ways. There are just so many different forks in the road, and we're choosing them all the time. Navigating life, it's not as simple as right and wrong answers. And maybe that's what the philosophy professor's been trying to get at all along with her students. It certainly seems to me that that's part of what Paul is wrestling with in his letter to all these little churches in the region of Galatia who are trying to understand how in the world they can know right from wrong, truth from lies. How do they know? Remember, Paul has been telling them earlier in this letter that the old law of Moses that helped them answer those questions, well, that doesn't quite have to be followed anymore. But if that's the case, then how do you know? How do you know what's the good life and what isn't? How do you know what God desires and what God doesn't if you can't count on your scriptures to be a simple rule book for you? Well, that's a pretty good question. Remember, in week one of this letter, we talked about how we always have to keep the point of the journey in mind, and the point is not 
the rules of the road, the scriptures that we memorize, the theological beliefs that we hold, the, the ethics we learn, the spiritual practices we develop, all of those are essential and helpful things. They are rules of the road that we need to learn and internalize, but they are not the aim. The goal in all of it is to live in life-giving relationship with God. That's the point of the journey. And it doesn't mean that all those things don't matter. The scriptures, our theology, our spiritual practices, our ethics, they matter greatly. You have to learn the rules to know how to break the rules well, the old saying goes. Or as Paul puts it in chapter 2, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. That's what Paul discovered in his own conversion on the road to Damascus. And it's the life that he describes in that really famous verse, I have now crucified all of that. I've crucified my whole life. I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer the I who lives, but it's Christ living in me. So this life I'm now living in my body, I live by faith. I trust in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's moved past all of the rules and boundaries that he had been taught to something more, to living in life-giving relationship with God and allowing the life of Christ to just flow through him into the world. Well, then in week two and in chapter three, we saw that if this is true for Paul, it's actually true for all of us, no matter who we are or what areas we come from or what other identities we have in our lives. All the identities we carry, they shape our self-understanding and they come from our story, our background, our family, our work, our career, our successes, our failures. All of those are important parts of our own story and they certainly can influence us as we come to a fork in the road and try to decide which way we're going to go. But the deeper truth is that all of us are something more than all those identities. We are, you are a child of God. And that's your deepest identity. And so Paul writes, there's actually no better or worse identities, even though we tend to value them differently. There's actually no more that have, there's no, none that have greater value or less value. Sure, there's different ethnic identities. There's Jew and there's Greek, but one is not more right or more significant than the other. And sure, there's different social identities. There are some who are free and some who are slaves, but that doesn't make one more valued or important than the other. And sure, there are different gender identities that we all claim that are male and female and everything in between, but that doesn't make any of those more important because what is primary is that you are of God. For you are, we are all one in Christ, Paul writes. This is our shared identity that runs deeper than anything else. And it's the thing that can guide us more clearly than anything else. But if these things are true, if it's true that some identities are no better or worse than anything else. And if it's true that the aim of our lives are not the beliefs and the rules that we learn from our scriptures or our theology or the practices that we're taught, then when I come to a fork in the road, does it even really matter? 
which way I go. When it comes to the choices of my life, does any of it even really matter? I mean, how can we even know what's right or wrong? Or is it just your opinion versus my opinion and nobody's right or wrong? How do you know? Or as the tests of your life are going to ask you, you come to a fork in the road, what do you do and why? It's a good question. Paul knows it. And so that's what he starts addressing as he gets to the latter part of this letter here in chapter 5. It's kind of like Paul himself is sitting down in that classroom and trying to tell us how he would write out the final to that question the teacher gives. Yes, you are free, Paul writes in verse 1 of chapter 5. But don't let anyone else enslave you. You're free. Don't let anyone put the yoke of their expectations upon your life. You're free. In Christ, you're free to step outside the rules of the road that everyone else thinks you're supposed to take. But be careful, he warns us. Because there is an immature freedom, and there is mature freedom. And the difference between those two, between immature freedom and mature freedom, can make all the difference in the world, and it can make all the difference for the world. The difference between immature freedom and mature freedom can make all the difference in your life and for your life. So be careful here. And this is where Paul shows us what a philosopher he actually goes on, or is, because he goes on to explain that freedom is not the freedom to self-indulgence. That only leads to destruction for you and destruction for the world around you. True freedom is the freedom to love wholeheartedly without anything holding you back. True freedom is the ability to live from kindness and from generosity because you've learned the rules so well and you've practiced them so long that you're not enslaved by your self-indulgence and your compulsions and your insecurities anymore. True freedom is the ability to live from a place of joy and peace and contentment in your life because you're, you're not enslaved by all those small self-identities that demand certain things of you. You've kind of learned their proper place in your life and those small identities, they're, they're not taken over and trying to control you. They're just the gifts of your unique story. True freedom is the ability to be gentle with yourself and gentle with others because you're not berated and chained every time you trip up or get lost on the path. True freedom allows us to be free in the very spirit of God that is all around us in all the paths and the spirit of God that is always burning there within us. That's what true freedom is. But immature freedom, on the other hand, well, it's actually a false freedom. You think you're free. You claim that you're free to choose and not choose, but it's a really a self-centered freedom in which you're still trapped by the warp desires and reactions and compulsions of your life. You're not free to live fully in love. You're just living in the small reactivity of your own life. Of course, you probably don't think so. We always like to think our freedom is the good kind of freedom. 
So how do we know? How do we know which freedom we're flexing? Well, you can tell by the fruits, Paul says. When you're living from an immature freedom and its selfish desires, they're going to have one kind of fruit in your life. And when you're living from the Spirit of God, when you're free to love wholeheartedly, then you're going to have a very different kind of fruit in your life. That's how you know when you're trying to decide what is true and what is false in your life. And you're trying to discern what is right and what is wrong in our world. And even when you're trying to navigate what is true and what is false in the church and its leaders, you can almost always tell by the fruits. And guess what? In the final exam of your own life, that is what will be revealed. We'll see. What kind of fruits did you bear and plant? Unfortunately, the philosophy professor didn't receive an essay quite as thoughtful as Paul's. Most of the answers she got back were kind of shallow and convoluted. One student did come up with a rather creative answer. It was the shortest response she'd ever had to one of her tests. Come to the fork in the road, and what do you do and why? The 19-year-old wrote, I pick it up and take it back to the cafeteria. <laughs> why? Because it probably belongs to them. That was all. The rest of the page was blank. She was actually kind of angry and frustrated when she first read it, but then she laughed like you did and gave him a C for creativity. <laughs> but she so wanted her students have something more when they left her class. So she decides to invite them all over to her house for a kind of end of semester celebration. Not all of them came, but a lot of them did because it's kind of cool and unique to get up to go to a professor's house. It doesn't happen very often. And so they hung out for a few hours and they ate together and they told stories and you know, they talked politics and religion the way that 19 and 20 year olds do. And they talked about what they were gonna do that summer and they dreamed about their future and as the night wound down, there was this pause in the conversation. And the professor decided this was kind of her chance. And so she said, before all of you leave, there's something I want to tell you. I know the final exam wasn't what you were expecting, but here's the thing. There are so many forks in the road of your life, and it's not just this one week at the end of a semester, and it's not just at the end of college. They will come to you in all kinds of ways each day and each week. And so if you don't get anything else from my class, I hope you'll take this with you. When you come to another moment you have to navigate and you're trying to decide which way to go and you just don't know because both paths look unclear or hard, or uncertain, pause for a moment and ask for love to be your guide. As you try to navigate even this week and this summer and all that it's going to bring you, look for where joy might be inviting you to go. 
And as you step down that path, let gentleness and kindness go before you, clearing your way. And let generosity and faithfulness give strength to your walking. And if you could all turn around again from the pain of your past and the uncertainties of your future have you stuck, just pause again and ask for love to be your guide. Let's pray. Oh God, may this be true for us. We do want to be free to live wholeheartedly. And we desire those fruits of your spirit to grow in us and to grow through us in other people's lives. Help us to know your heart and for your heart to grow in us. We ask this in the name of the one who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power. Lord,